You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the web website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au please stick around for this week's elephant rider boot camp and we have a cracking dumbo of the week coming up before we get started everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice if you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Have you ever wondered why the bank will give you a pre-approval for finance, but then say it's subject to evaluation? So you find the property you want to buy, you want to make sure the valuation is okay, but when the bank says you need to have actually bought the property before they'll order the valuation... Look, to me, this chicken and egg scenario seems madness, but it happens all the time and it results in buyers often unwittingly taking on huge risks. I'd love to find out why this is the case. Today, we're going to discuss this and much more with Bart Mead, Head of Residential and Mortgage Valuation Advisory Australia for JLL. Bart has 30 years experience providing property advice to financial institutions, government bodies and private clients. His experience includes a wide variety of generalist valuation work incorporating valuations of industrial, commercial, retail and residential assets. So thank you for joining us today, Bart. We've got lots of questions for you. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Bart. Um, Really looking forward to this. I um, generally, before a podcast, just put down a list of questions that are I'm keen to ask and uh, I could have kept going for days with this situation because um, there's so many things around valuations that are really important for property investors to kind of grasp. But what do you believe? Why valuation is such an important part to understanding, I guess, transacting in the residential property market? There's a lot of aspects to that question. Um, And because we started off talking about the banks, um, residential property valuations in a lot of ways actually underpins the uh, financial system and the economy to a certain extent because it does give uh, the banks the confidence to actually lend money so they can have confidence around their security position uh, which obviously allows a lot of credit to flow into the market so from a financial aspect they are quite critical and they do play a very important But to me, the most important part is that the consumer, the buyer, has confidence in what they're doing and making the right decision for their own future, their own financial position, and often for their own lifestyle. So you mentioned there around the banking side. I think that's, um, you know, I guess the the bank wants to, if they're going to lend money, they want to make sure that they've got assets to protect them and they're lending against assets that they could they could potentially sell if you default. Um, so I guess the valuation part of that's outsourcing that risk to an organisation to protect them if things go wrong. But you're also saying it's also on the other side, the customer side, um, for them to have confidence to know that, um, you know, they're buying assets at fair prices. Would you say that's the other part? Yeah, no, definitely. 
The problem with that though is that, and this happens in Sydney where I operate, is that quite often, as I mentioned in the introduction there, that it is a situation where the bank won't order that valuation until they've got a signed contract. And that, that might be with a cooling off period, um, but quite often it's not, or it's after auction. So how does the valuation then give the buyer confidence? Because they've already made the decision and paid the money. And that, that's the issue um, when generally there's only one valuation being done per transaction. And the reason the banks do it after the fact is that traditionally they have advisors that they have confidence in um, and they will only use certain valuers. So most banks don't just use any valuer out there in the market. They have their panel of valuers which they trust and have confidence in their advice. Uh, so for them to get a valuation up front, um, just logistically doesn't work. Plus, it would be a very expensive exercise for a bank to allow uh, borrowers to get their own valuations up front if the bank was actually going to cover that cost, which in a lot of situations they do. Yeah. So uh, that, that's traditionally the reason the valuation is done after the fact. Uh, and unfortunately, even if a buyer gets a valuation up front because of that situation, it's highly unlikely the bank will rely on it as well. So yeah. you're in a situation where there needs to be two valuations done. So that, that's a reason why we have the situation we're in or the dilemma. However, over the last 15 years, the valuation landscape has changed quite dramatically where it really has corporatized. There is a much smaller number of firms in Australia servicing the banks, which means that we're probably getting closer to a point where the consumer will be able to get a valuation in confidence and hopefully transfer all the way through the mortgage process. That, that's a, a fair change for banks and the financial institutions to change their process, but that is a real viable option and would provide a much better customer experience. And you know, as you're talking today, you know, how do we make sure that the consumer is getting the right nice confidence and a good experience? And that's one way where I see that our future can change uh, which actually provides a much better experience and a much more secure decision-making process for the purchaser in the bank. So you're saying there that potentially prior to purchasing in the future, there could be a better option because there's only a smaller number of firms where we could have more, a, a, almost a range or a purchase price that would be fair for that property that a buyer could pay to know that then the bank would, would lend on that valuation. Like, um, you know, because you can't go to the dollar because there's always negotiation. There's always, you know, I, I guess it's, and then if, you know, if you say it's only worth 1.6, right, and then um, someone goes and offers 1.65 under competition, then the bank lending lends on 1.6 and we're going to have all problems with settlement and things like that. So how would you, how would you factor in something like competition and um, the whole, even the process of auction, you know, it's, it's the scarcity pushing up prices and, people overpaying. Yeah, so we have looked at this with a couple of banks where a valuation is done prior to a sale or prior to an auction. Uh, 
And once the property is actually sold and the valuation makes its way from the purchaser to the bank, um, the bank would come back to us and say, well, you did a valuation here of 1.6, they've paid 1.65. Are you prepared uh, to adjust to mend your valuation to the 1.65 for first mortgage purposes? And okay. in most cases, values would say, well, that's within that range, so I'll adopt that actual purchase price. You know, if it came yeah. 1.9 or 2 million, well, then the value would probably say, well, hold on, there's something a bit out of line here. I'm not going to extend my valuation for mortgage purposes at the purchase price. So, so it, it is doable. It's a change in the process. Um, but again, it, it's something that in this current um, you know, environment we work in, um, it is doable. So, Bart, are you suggesting that um, in the future if buyers had the opportunity to get a valuation prior to purchase, um, and obviously there's an affordability issue here in terms of just general cost of um, of getting valuations, uh, are you sort of thinking or are you seeing a future where auto vowels will play a part in this? Uh, when you say auto vowels, you mean automated valuation models? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, I'll go back to your first point. I think the cost of evaluation is very low for the professional advice the individual's getting, considering the uh, amount of money they're about to spend or invest. So I think from a cost perspective, evaluation is probably the one of the cheapest and best value bits of advice someone can get. Unfortunately, yeah. in state in Australia, everyone expects everything to be for free because no one actually <laughs> money out of their pocket to pay for anything. Um, and I would suggest the majority of people don't even see the agent's commission as an expense to them because they're not taking it out of their pocket. It's something they've never seen. It disappears. So, so that's the, the first issue. But I believe the cost isn't a, a, a barrier. It's just the... the the conditioning, the mindset that we have when it comes to property in Australia. Uh, with- I, I that, but it definitely with the cost, I think the problem is with, with the cost is if you're buying a property in an area where you've got a highly likelihood and there's not that much competition, you're going to get the transaction done, then paying, you know, $1,000, $2,000 for evaluation um, is, is, is actually dollar well spent because you know you're highly likely you're going to get the property. But in a hot auction market of, say, Sydney or Melbourne, et cetera, um, it's highly likely that you're actually not going to get that property. Um, and so not only do you have to pay the valuation, but you have to pay a building and pest. You also have to get the contract checked, um, et cetera. So every time you go to an auction, you're going to be outlaying, you know, substantially more. Um, and then that's going to accumulate over, say, four or five properties while you miss out. But you could argue, Chris, that if you got the valuation done first, you save a lot of money in building and pest and contract reviews because a lot of the reason people miss out on auction is because they believe what the agent's quoting without really fully understanding what the property might be worth. So there's <laughs> a couple of different ways of looking at this one. But even still, you wouldn't get the property, right? If it, if it was, you know, if you were saying, well, I wouldn't be willing to pay that. I mean, you might end up paying more or what you need to pay. Would you see that being a problem? Yeah, no, and you are right. When when you are bidding on a number of properties, you know, the costs do increase and 
um, you know, you are exposed to more outlay. I still think the overall expenditure is still quite small. Um, the yeah. overall transaction. And I, I do believe that um, you getting the right property at the right price uh, is worth spending money on. You're preaching to the converted here on that one, but I'm I'm curious because you could have two valuations that were very different from each other. So how can that come about if everybody's using the same? And I know residential is a, a bit more straightforward than, say, commercial or retail or industrial, um, but how can that come about that you can have and I've seen them, I've seen resi- uh, valuations for the same property vary quite widely. So what are some of the scenarios where that might happen? Now you're asking me very difficult questions. Uh, <laughs> That's what we're here for. Because you are correct that um, you do see it and it is um, very possible um, because you are relying on individuals and their opinion. Um and, and, and that's the issue with valuation, and I'll come back to your question around automated valuation models, but, but the fundamental flaw in valuation is that you are asking an individual's opinion, um, and every individual's opinion is going to be different, and every individual will have different biases and prejudice, um, even when it's their profession and what they do all day. So why? So that, that's the reason you get those differences, and that, that's again, as I said, that's a fundamental flaw in our profession. Uh, coming back to your question earlier about automated valuation models, I do believe they will be a big part of our profession going forward. Uh, we have uh, our own automated valuations for rent, uh, rental values and capital values on residential properties. Uh, and the reason we have those is they the, the cornerstone or our uh, data and analytics stack and um, products. And using that, we have built what we call our property intelligence report which basically sits around an individual's brain because the value in the valuer's head is so valuable. But to make sure that we're not just on an individual's uh, opinion, surrounding that we have this very sophisticated, robust data analytics environment that tells us if that valuer's opinions a bit offline, it's not fitting in with what all our data is telling us. Yeah. So that way we get the best of the individual's local knowledge, their property intelligence, but we've got the data, we've got the analytics, uh, ensuring that we're managing that risk and that we are, our opinions are more consistent and they're not sort of jumping all over the place as you would if you had five, six, ten, a hundred different individuals giving their own view. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. But, but we are moving into an era where we've really got to combine property intelligence with artificial intelligence. Um, you, you see a lot of data tech companies out there talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is great. Um, but if you haven't got that property intelligence, if you don't have that domain knowledge, if you don't have that local knowledge, um, 
your artificial intelligence isn't going to give you the results you need. So we've been working for a number of years on integrating that property intelligence into our artificial intelligence, um, which hopefully in the future will ensure that we don't have those big variations in valuations that you currently see. I think that's really um, important. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, these AVM sort of models, all the banks have jumped on board, you know, ANZ, CBA, et cetera, get a property report. Um, and when we, you know, Veronica would look at these and look at it comparing to the actual property value, they're all over the place. And secondly, um, the reason why I believe is that a lot of them haven't got that local knowledge and actually putting the value on the things they should be putting value on, i.e. the better street or the better frontage or north facing or um, the layout and things like that. And so, you know, and the ranges are so varied anyway for, for quality assets. But for, say, um, bulk standard apartments where there's, 10,000 of them or hundreds of thousands of them in an area, um, you know, those models are, are probably more likely to, to be suitable. Um, and so I think in a lot of industry, it's about using the, you know, the technology plus the local knowledge or the local expertise in whatever industry um, seems to be, you know, a much better model. But in terms of actual bank valuation, um, there's not just one type of valuation. I think clients get confused. They sometimes think that, um, Every valuation is the same, but there's different versions like desktop and drive-bys, et cetera. Can you please explain the, the differences um, and what ba- most banks do? Yeah, no, I'm more than happy with that. So currently, well, say, say three weeks ago, there was uh, four types of valuations that banks do. So there's the automated valuation model, which is just computer-generated. There is a desktop valuation where a valuer will assess the value of a property from their desk using whatever information is available to hand. Then there was curbside valuations where the valuer would drive and sit outside the property and view it externally. Then there was a full physical valuation uh, where the valuer would go internally and you know, inspect the property, measure it, talk to the owner, etc. Um, on the 30th of March, the Australian Property Institute put out a state of emergency protocol, which allows virtual inspections because of the COVID-19 virus. Mm, and yeah. there's also the option to do a virtual inspection. Um, so, uh, you, yeah, as you would see, um, the quality of those valuations as far as accuracy, uh, the confidence level increases as you go up that list. So the, the automated valuation has the lowest level of confidence. The full physical has the highest level of confidence around the accuracy of that valuation. So banks will use um, a different valuation type depending on the loan to value ratio for the loan. Uh, also the client, the amount of time the client's been with them. So they'll look at a number of different variables to determine what level of valuation they use. It's a good point actually because um, recently they would actually use, uh, always go full valuation, um, you know, pay the cost and just get it done. But I noticed a bit of a trend last year and a couple of years um, that the banks would just, literally just do desktop values and look at the contract price and the property address um, and just say, yeah, we're happy with contract price. Um, 
But that's in a real risk on market. Um, and now that we're going to a market where banks are pulling out of lending and thinking about all their risks, um, those things are going out the window again. Now they're looking for full valves all the time um, to, to lower their risk. Um, but I recently a client, we got a low valve on a property and then the client just said, why can't we just use this valuer, right? Um, uh, and one of the, you know, a valuer they preferred or they know has done a valuation on the property before that's been favourable. <laughs> How do banks actually keep that conflict of interest there where it's independent and what's the process around banks picking valuers? So the banks uh, do have panels, so they will select valuers who will do their work and they will then allocate those valuers on a geographic basis, so generally a postcode or a uh, SA2 or 3 type uh, geographic basis. Then they'll allocate a uh, percentage of the work. So there might be you know, a suburb of Sydney, there's three valuers who do the work for a bank in that suburb, uh, and they might allocate 40% of the work to one valuer, um, 30 to another, and that'll be on a rotation basis. So the system, when it decides it needs a full valuation in that suburb, it will just randomly select one of those three valuers um, and make sure that on a proportionate basis it goes per the allocation. So that way the uh, buyer purchaser refinancing has no idea who's actually going to get the valuation. They, they know it's going to be one of those three firms, but they don't know which. And even the people in the bank um, don't have influence over who's actually going to get valuation for that property. So that, that's how the banks do it to manage their risk. Um, I say that's a little bit sad. Uh, our profession isn't trusted enough that the banks have to go to that extent to make sure they feel secure that there's no fraud or untoward activity going on uh, between a, a borrower and a valuer. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the, the way they currently operate. Yeah, I think it's important, though, because valuations do have such a big impact on how much people can borrow. So, um, you know, if you did have someone that was been basically playing the system um, and you could always go use that same valuer, for example, um, you know, you would find that there's potential problems and there has been, uh, you know, potential property spruikers that have used flaws in valuation models um, over the last couple of years um, to leverage their clients. Um, there's been cases online you can read about it where um, they've seen that banks are doing auto valuations on properties under certain values um, and then being able to game the system. So, you know, it's, it's just valuations are so important to keep independence there, I believe, just because it's such a, it's the true trust factor um, around what banks can lend. Yeah, and I, I do agree with that. Uh, but what I said earlier, you know, our profession has changed a lot in 15 years. Mm. We've corporatized an awful lot. And there's no way in the world JLL are going to risk their reputation for $250 bank valuation fee by trying to do the wrong thing. So I believe the days of valuers writing fees, as people would say, uh, for $200, $250 is gone. Um, yeah. The banks are only using those bigger corporate firms that they can trust. So for that interest, in instance, 
we have three firms doing that suburb in Sydney. Mm. Um, if you're a purchaser and you know that those three will um, do the valuation for the bank in a month's time, that you go and engage one of those upfront, they do your valuation, you purchase a property, it goes through the system, the bank goes, well, you know, we know them, we trust them, uh, we'll just get confirmation from them, they're happy for us to use it for mortgage purposes. Um, it seems like a pretty simple process. Everyone has confidence, everyone has trust, everyone's doing the right thing. Um, you yeah. have your risk management mitigation around that, but that's where I do see that we've moved away from that era where a lot of small valuation firms, you know, you did have trust issues to now bigger corporates who aren't going to risk their reputation and their business over a couple of hundred dollars, um, which will allow a much better experience for both the purchaser and the, the lender. And just on that, the couple of hundred dollars, because of course, anecdotally, we keep hearing about, you know, the the banks have driven the the cost of valuations down for themselves, obviously, and in terms of negotiating deals with individual valuation firms, such as JLL, I guess. Um, But what are the, you know, I mean, look, I know in my business, we're not valuers, but when we do price research, it really, it's so rigorous to do it properly. It takes hours, you know, you can't pay staff, you can't have offices, you can't, um, you know, you can't, I could never do a, a, a an appraisal even for two hundred and fifty dollars. Um, how does a valuation firm? I guess you know what are you looking for in terms of the, to give you the confidence to be able to give a price because you can't possibly go into it in the depth that say we do. The valuation profession is extremely efficient, uh, and this isn't just JLL. This is our profession. We are extremely efficient. We are big users of technology, uh, big users of data, um, because if we weren't, we wouldn't be viable. We wouldn't be able to survive. Mm. So we as a profession, um, and, and I don't want to bag our profession because I'm a big believer in it, but we're not very good at selling our value. We've never mm. been selling to the banks the value we add to them. Um, they almost see us as a commodity, whether they're buying valuations, rulers, paper, uh, and it's all price-driven. And because we weren't that sophisticated, um, valuers would beat on price. So because of that, we had to become super efficient. We had to be big users of technology. We had to be big users of data. And we had to keep our valuers in very... Um, uh, concentrated geographic areas, so they built up a big pool of property intelligence in their own head with the support of the data, the technology, to allow us to actually survive financially. So, um, and because we do high volumes, um, allows the valuers to be, again, more efficient and have more confidence around what they're doing. And most valuers... Um, 80% of the time when they arrived at a property, they'd be pretty confident about what the number is. So it is that repeat um, on the road, analysing sales, looking at properties, knowing their market really well. Uh, yeah, because I think that local knowledge is is obviously really, really key uh, to that, but, but the technology obviously as well. But, yeah, I mean, I know that I've, I've in the over the years I've met 
valuers of varying levels of experience and, you know, the newbies and, you know, the the ones that really get it and, yeah, you can just see that those that get it and, and have been around a long time obviously are going to form an opinion a lot quicker or an educated opinion. But in terms of the recent sale, so you're not going to go through every single recent sale that might relate to a property. So you, are you basically, is the typical format to say, okay, we've got to find that one that's one superior, one that's inferior and one that's um, comparable or equivalent. Is that the, the typical way it's done? Uh, when you look at evaluation, yes, that's what's done because that's the process that you need to follow to, you know, to uh, tick the boxes from a, a process, a um, governance compliance perspective. But a valuer will have up to 30 valuation, up 30 sales in the file they receive for that property. Um, they will, ins- will have inspected probably 10 to 15 of those themselves prior. Um, so again, they do have a deep understanding and knowledge of the market. Um, so it isn't about just picking a sale and saying, oh, I'm going to compare it to that. They're actually comparing it to what they did yesterday, what they did last week, what they did last month. Um, and because you are doing it all day, every day, you know, you are a lot more efficient. I'm not arguing that the prices are right, that the prices shouldn't be higher. Um, but we as a profession have to be able to show value and why people want to pay us more um, rather than, you know, complain that the fees are too low. Um, but we've also got to make sure that we maintain a high level of quality and a high level of confidence around the, the values we are actually putting out there. In the in a rising market, um, if you're looking at recent recent sales, you, there's a, you know, obviously a lag effect and can mean valuations keep coming in low. And you guys, um, from what I understand, you can't look at exchange sales. You can only look at settled sales, correct? Um, and then like, yeah, and likewise in a falling market, the lag effect could mean that your prices are a bit high. What's the, what? How does that compensated for? Um, given the fact that you can only use, you know, what I would call an old sale, you know what I mean? Because it's not, it's, it's something three months ago is not, is not yesterday. Yeah, so coming back to what you said about a sale higher, a sale lower, a sale comparable, um, but go in a report. So when you put a, a sale in a report because you need to take the view that every valuation you do, you could end up in court and the court will only accept, you know, registered settled sales mm. however you are looking at what's on the market you can put in your report um, unsettled sales so sales that have transacted but haven't actually settled or haven't gone through the, the government process so you can't use them as your primary uh, sales evidence but you can certainly use those to come up with your opinion and you can actually put those within the valuation report as well. And that's what valuers will do in a market that's rising and falling um, to try to make sure that they are at market level. Um, But you will see sales in those reports don't really, or often don't reflect the value uh, because the the opinion's been based on what's actually happening in the market, not what sold two months ago, three months ago. So, So valuers do try to make sure that the value they're actually putting on is as today's date, not three months ago. And and then it's it is still. I mean, do you apply 
you know, do you factor the some of the older sales up? Do you look at what market growth has been in the area, and and even then, what what measurement do you use? I guess is a, a challenge. But is that does that sort of go into the process as well, or is it more based around what what evidence in terms of sales? It, it, primarily, it is the evidence, but that's where you know, with what we're doing, um, we are looking at all the data what's actually happening, what are the drivers, uh, what's actually changing in the market, you know, what are the days on market, what's the stock levels, you know, even what's unemployment doing. So we can factor in indexing um, into our modelling so the valuers are getting the benefit of, you know, big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence around that data so then they can make their uh, opinion based on that rather than the individual saying, well, my sales are two months old. I think this has actually happened. So I'm going to put this number on it just because that's what I think. So we can back that thinking up with actual data. So again, the the profession is sophisticating, will becoming much more sophisticated, um, not only from a, a corporate level, but from a technology and data level. So the COVID scenario, um, you know, I, I agree with Veronica that in a rising market, a falling market, you can, you know, sales become outdated extremely fast, but also in, in markets like now where there's external sort of market risks um, and all valuations have them in them. They have um, recent market direction, you know, market volatility, um, what's happening in that local economy, um, and then what is the that segment that you're buying, like, what's happening in the houses versus the apartment. But um, how much does that impact the final valuation when a lot of it's opinion-based on what may or may not happen in the future? And depending on whether you're a doomsdayer or you're a more optimist, that's going to impact your behavioural biases, which impacts your valuation. And so how much does that personal opinion impact the valuation um, or is it, should it just be based on like the past sales and what has actually just happened? Yeah, so as I said earlier, um, you know, valuers have their own biases and prejudices um, and they interpret markets differently. Um, but the, the, the psyche around evaluation, and that's why we, we hold tight to settled sales, so you're actually basing on actual evidence uh, and you're making it a, a point in time. So every valuation is a point in time the day it's actually done. So if the world changes tomorrow, um, things need to be reassessed. So so while we have to take into account what is actually going on, we are doing a point in time assessment. We are basing it on you know those concrete pieces of evidence but then factoring in what has actually happened since that date. Um, forecasting is something that I'm uh, a believer in and believe that we need as a, as a profession to be better at. Um, but at this point in time, we don't actually go beyond today uh, because it's too unknown. Um, but things like the COVID, you know, it does throw out a lot of um, unanswered questions. But you look at um, while demand is falling, so is supply. Um, and we expect supply will keep falling because people who can afford to take their properties off the market will take them off the market and that'll keep things relatively balanced. 
a lot of things the government doing are hopefully going to prevent um, a lot of issues around rental properties, uh, yeah. people being able to maintain their mortgages, which will give that stability. So for value right at the minute would be saying, well, this is the current evidence. This is what I think it is now, but I will make comments about, you know, uncertainty, um, the risks associated. So then the buyer or bank then decide what they're going to do with it after that. So it's more about just letting the bank know that this is what's happening in the market right now. But, um, and so if they're willing to take on that risk, they just need to be aware that there is potentially a lot of volatility. There is a potential negative sentiment out there, but our valuation is based on recent sales. It's not based on where we think the price is going to be in the future, which is, which I think is the right way. But I feel a lot of valuations we've been getting recently, especially on refinances and even some purchases, um, the value has come in there and said, well, you know, the value where we think it's going, which it's pretty dangerous when that starts happening because you start getting really low values on purchases and things like that. And that's uh, interesting. So I'm glad you actually said that to me because um, I'm a director of the Australian Property Institute and I have been watching our business and we're certainly um, not dropping values as such as a result of uncertainty. So I'll, I'll uh, make sure that that message comes out from the Australian Property Institute that valuers can't factor in uncertainty into their valuations at the moment because that's the sort of thing that can do as much damage to an economy as uh, banks not lending. Um, it, in, that's probably not the reason you said that to me, but I will um, actually look at that as well. It's very interesting that actually because, you know, yeah, on the ground we often see sort of some odd things with valuations and, um, and yes, some level of speculation from the valuer, which is sort of interesting. But I wonder how much do banks dictate um, how the valuation should be done? You know, do they come to you and say, right, well, we want – you know, the, the climate is, is uncertain, we want to mitigate risk, so therefore we want um, ultra-conservative valuations and I don't know how they'd frame that. Do they say 20% lower than what you would otherwise put on? I mean, I don't know how, how it would work, but is there some some sort of framework or guideline that banks actually uh, turn around to valuation companies such as yourself and say, right, well, this is the, this is the, the climate and then in this climate these are the sorts of valuations we want or the sort of approach we want to valuations? No. Um, and I know you're both very young. In the old, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in the olden days, banks actually did valuate and they did refer to them as bank valuations and they would actually take 10 or 20% off the top and that's what they use for lending. And that mm. was done for the last 20 years. You know, banks are very commercial, they're very competitive um, and they want valuations to be as accurate as possible because they want to be able to... <laughs> manage their risk that they want to be able to lend. So for a bank to go out and say we want a conservative valuation would actually take them out of the market. So it doesn't happen. Uh, I know there's a perception at times and I think it's often back to those days when a bank valuation, uh, a value would do a valuation at 100, the bank would knock off 80, or off 20, then they'd lend on that 80. Um, yeah. It doesn't happen anymore. The only areas where you do 
see banks having specific instructions around evaluation will be um, brand new uh, property where they say we're going to lend on that as soon as someone moves into it it's a second-hand property so we want it valued using sales of second-hand property it might be six-month-old property might be nine-month-old property but they don't want it uh, valued using sales of brand new property that, that's the only area or where um, um, you know a property might be sold with a lease back where you don't value the the value of the lease. So um, they're, they're the only examples I can think of off the top of my head where a bank um, gives additional instructions on how to value a property. Yeah, I mean, I, anecdotal evidence, we've, we've lodged some, applic- uh, you know, uh, refinances with certain banks and the valuations always seem to come in lower than some other banks, but technically there shouldn't be any bias there. Technically it should be independent. Um and so, and it should be randomly allocated, so you shouldn't see it. But I guess it comes back to one of your points earlier, where you said um, every valuation could get taken to court. And so, the valuers, you know, I don't know if I was doing my job and um, there was a risk I could get taken to court for overvaluing a property. Um, wouldn't you say that potentially they would potentially want to put a smaller valuation on it because that hedges their risk? Um, or do you think that that does happen on a scale that, you know, because there's always people who are looking to protect themselves. So do you think that happens? Uh, I, I think it would be a very small percentage. Because yeah. There's probably as much risk of being sued for undervaluing something as there is for overvaluing something. Yeah. So I, I believe it also balances itself out. And that's why valuers, you know, do try to be as close to the real valuers they possibly can. Um, yeah. I don't believe valuers go out there to be conservative uh, and I don't believe valuers go out there to you know, put on a high number so someone can do a deal. I do believe for so many different reasons, forces from sides, that they do try to be as accurate as possible. Yeah. Often it's quite difficult. It's not an easy job. No, no. And it, that's the thing, you're right. They're doing so many valuations a day, maybe, you know, five to ten potentially. Um you know, depending on how busy they are and how fast the market's moving. But I think um, you touched on a really interesting point, which we wanted to talk about, and that's new property. Um, you know, our listeners are all converted and would not go anywhere near off the plan property. Um, <laughs> we just don't believe it's a great investment for most people. And even right now, a lot of people who have bought off the plan prior to COVID and now lost their jobs are going to be freaking out because um, their deposits are at risk if they can't settle plus other things. So, with off-the-plan property, what are some of the risks, especially around evaluation, that you see are quite prolific? Because, you know, when I've looked at CoreLogic stats, you know, potentially over 50% of properties in some cities are coming in with low valuations. And can you please explain why that issue really exists and how prolific it is? Yes, I think that's a really easy one because it's all about predicting the future. And when you're buying off the plan, you don't really know what's going to happen between the time you sign up and the time you settle. So that, that's, that's the real risk and that's the danger. Um, and you see plenty of times and plenty of people who make exceptionally good money out of the plan because the market's going the right way or things have changed to uh, the betterment of the, the property over that period. And at the same time, when the market goes the wrong way, um, 
it becomes extremely difficult. And, you know, there's no doubt you are seeing a number of valuations coming in below the contracted price, but we're also seeing, and, you know, with um, our data and we do a lot of uh, GIS mapping, uh, we have done a number of um, uh, um, can't even think of the right word um, for a couple of the banks to show them where their lending is in a city in off the plan apartments and where the values are coming in below at and above and you will find it will be certain locations in the city certain types of property certain quality of building uh, and you can have another building where the values are coming up above the actual contracted price. So yeah. like most things, it's about the location, the quality, you know, what market, you know, what was what was the apartment designed for to um, as far as owner occupiers, investors, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it comes down to again knowing what you're trying to buy, the reason you're buying it, the location, uh, but there's still a high risk with an off the plan that it could go down as much as it could go up and no one's going to know until you get to that point. Yeah. I mean, I think the big risk is if you buy a real scarce off the plan, that's um, in a great location, that's a great building um, and it's very scarce and it maybe suits a real affluent owner occupier uh, and there's not enough of those in the market, then yeah, those valuations are potentially going to be more solid if the market stays strong. But you know, things that are built for investors that are also in high density area suburbs. Um, you know, it doesn't take much for fire sales to happen in an area that, like you said, they have to be based on those sales of similar apartments that are in similar buildings. Um, and and that's very, sorry, and that's where that, you know, professional advice up front is so valuable um, for people who actually know there is going to be an oversupply of this type of property. So if you're going to buy up the plan, you need to buy this type of property in this location within this city uh, because that's the market that's going to be a lot secure and stable. So, you know, it's that up the front, up front advice that is so important, um, particularly with off the purchases. Yes, unfortunately, there's such a lot of heavy marketing that uh, makes, uh, particularly first home buyers, and a lot of um, unsophisticated investors fall for the the glossy, uh, you know, the idea of buying brand new and depreciation, and no one's ever cooked in that oven, no one's ever sat on that toilet, all that sort of stuff, and they forget that, that they see that there's no risk in that, but there's enormous risk, and I, I'm, I'm hoping more and more of the, those people listening to the podcast so that they can actually learn about those risks. Um, I think too, one thing that I once heard was that you, you obviously can't use um, sale of brand new properties in evaluation as comparables either. And that sort of goes to what you were saying that in the in the actual valuation of the brand new property, they're using existing stock because nobody's paid a premium for the, you know, those, um, well, they haven't paid a brand new premium for a property, it's a second-hand property. And, um, you know, and it goes the other way as well. Of course, if you're looking at an apartment, you know, I know I've had arguments with people trying to compare uh, a property and and justify, or I, I, mostly agents trying to justify a property of an existing apartment. Uh, the sorry, justify this asking price of an existing apartment against the new stuff that's selling nearby. And it's like, well, it doesn't work that way. It definitely wouldn't stack up if it went to valuation. Yeah, and, and that's where 
Yeah, it is difficult because you know we've had marketers in the market for so long now, and there's no doubt you know a lot of them are getting a premium which isn't achievable. You know, by a real local real estate trying to sell that property again. Um, mm. At the same time, you know, we do have good quality uh, apartments that will sell again um, at the price that they've sold for brand new. Uh, but it all gets caught up in the general market, and you know, particularly with the bank saying, "Well, uh, it's too difficult to try, try to segregate asset classes within the." your apartment um, Mm. so we're just going to have a single um, you know criteria on how we look at sales within brand new apartments within Australia yeah Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and are a whole lot of stress mistakes that can be avoided please bar can you give us an example of a property dumbo we can all learn what not to do from these stories to me, where most people get it wrong, and I think you sort of alluded to it there, um, emotion. Emotion is extremely dangerous when you come to The only time you should allow emotion to come into your decision is when you're buying your home. Um, and I think when you buy your home, emotion should be a big part of it. The, the, the dollars shouldn't be so important. But else in property you need to take the emotion out of it you need to do it very much on a financial uh, and, a, and a future strategy and I see most people make massive mistakes particularly investment properties because they get emotion involved so to me emotion you just got to keep it out of there and a way to do that's just is through you know getting an independent valuation sometimes to upfront to just make sure that you, um, yeah, at least got the price side of it right. Not so much whether it's a great asset to buy, but at least knowing the the valuation side is right. Is that one way? Yeah, that's certainly one way. And I am a big believer in um, buyers' advocacy because uh, you're getting, you know, again professionals who that's their job all day, every day, uh, give yeah. really good quality advice. Not only just about the price, but why are you buying a property? What's the purpose of it? When do you expect to get returns? What sort of returns are you after? So that you actually get, again, the right price or the right property at the right price. Um, so valuation is important, but I do believe that um, rounded professional property advice is really important as well. Yeah. I mean, I think Veronica doesn't need to say she agrees, but anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of actually valuing the asset, in terms of like, where do you think people go wrong? Like I know that when you split evaluation, most people may have seen evaluation, but you've got the land component and you've got the building component. Um, and potentially it's very easy to get it wrong because you could overvalue what it costs to replace the building. Um, you could undervalue it as well because if it's a heritage building, but also the, the land, you could potentially overvalue or undervalue it. Where do you see common mistakes where people are completely miss or overvaluing or overestimating the price of properties? I think the biggest mistake is actually breaking up the components of evaluation. And unfortunately, when you see evaluation, they're broken up um, and it is extremely misleading because a valuer does not work out the value of a property by looking at components. 
they actually come up with the value based on the evidence, the market, everything else. And after that, um, from an academic point of view and often from a, a banking requirement, they break up that valuation into components. Um, so I think... And so when you say components, you meaning like the improvement, the land and then the improvement on that land? Right, exactly. So when you... Uh, look at evaluation, it'll have a land value, it'll have a building value, it'll have uh, ancillary improvements values. Mm. People look at that and go, hold on, it would be at least double that for the house. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't always add up, does it? No, it <laughs> one plus one plus one equals seven. <laughs> yeah. So, and the easiest thing to put a real value on is the land. So generally when you see evaluation and the components the land will be accurate. The rest of it is depreciated, all the rest of it, um, to come up with the actual market value rather than a, a um, summation-style valuation. So to me, the biggest risk is people trying to come up with a value on a property based on what they think the land's worth, what it costs for the house and the improvements. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, that will give you a number that's way too high or a number that's way too low. I've seen some crazy, some crazy logic when it comes to trying to work out what prices people should pay. Um, actually, just on that, if we could touch on the idea of land value, it's something that people often say, you often hear people say, and we've said it ourselves, you know, the value is in the land, not in the improvement. But then, then you look at an Art Deco apartment or you look at a Victorian terrace or a lovely double-fronted weatherboard cottage which has got scarcity because of the vintage of the home on it um and the improvement has some additional value because of its because of its age and it can't be replaced so how do you sort of um you know and, and i hear people saying oh i'm going to buy a house and land package out in the outskirts of the city because it's got land and i can only afford apartment if i buy closer in how do you sort of explain that better to people about really where the value is in that land yeah and, and that's why uh, you generally don't have a lot of interviews like this with valuers because valuers don't like to talk at a general level because property is so specific and mm. values can change dramatically within inside a building, within apartments, let alone, you know, within a street or a suburb or type. So it, it really, you know, the, the underlying fundamental in most situations is the land is where the value is and the long-term value. But there is no doubt a view from an apartment could be worth so much that it outweighs everything, regardless mm. of what it is. Um, but as you said, the actual building uh, could actually be all the value. Um, so you really do have to look at the individual property as to where the value lies within it. But you know, at a general level, Certainly the land is where it all sits. Um, and even in apartments, um, at, at some point, the value of that land is going to outstrip the value of those apartments as a collective. So even in an apartment, one day the land will be the really valuable, valuable unless there's something specific about that um, apartment that overrides everything else but yeah we do see that in some of some of the older 1960s block you know red brick three-story walk-up blocks um for instance where depending on where they're located that the potential for that as a redevelopment site 
um, gets to a point, it's a tipping point, isn't it, really? And then as long as you've got 75% of the owners in agreement, then some of these buildings end up getting sold to developers and um, they all take a bit of a tidy profit. So it is interesting. And I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that too, definitely in Sydney. Yeah, no, and definitely. And it, it does come, but, but as you said, you know, the heritage component could be something that will outweigh the land component for the foreseeable future so the value is actually in the improvement. Uh, but mm. it really comes down to the individual property as to understanding where the value sits within that property. And, I mean, that's the, the skill of a value is to actually know the market would be saying, well, there's only 50 terraces in the suburb. They're highly desirable, you know, only 5% of them transacting every year. So, you know, there's only one property on the market or two properties on the market like this, you know, and that's, um, or it's a north facing backyard and it's a flat block, which are rare in the area because it's all hilly and things like that. And that's the, you know, the small things that make the big difference that push the value of one property up over the other. And, um, you know, it's just really you have to have a seriously good knowledge of a market to know what the value of a property is for the quality stuff, I think, um, to actually put value on the right things. Um, in terms of actually the potential improvements with a property, I've got a client at the moment who's, you know, unfortunately we've got a really bad valuation issue that we're dealing with. Um, and a lot of the reasons why he bought, bought the property is um, because it's a very flat block in Mossman, for example, um, and it's got a DA um, and the DA is already through council. It's already approved. It's ready to go and it'll take the property from a mid-market to a pr- the top premium market. Do DAs get included as part of the valuation process at all? Um, or do you think they're just really, uh, it's not really a big part of what a value would look at? Uh, no, they definitely have a material effect on the value of a property and it can be in the positive and it can also be in the negative, but that could also be a situation where a bank might say, we want you to value it, but we want you to disregard the DA. Um, but often you will get valuations that do take into account the DA because that will have a material effect on what you can do with that property, which has a material effect on what the value of that property is. But then the purchaser, the owner, the lender, again, needs to be aware that you know, if that DA is not acted on in the next two or three years or whatever the time frame is, that DA yeah. disappears and that value will disappear. So, again, they can include it. They can exclude it. But again, it's a, a situation of the, the user of that valuation being aware that there may be a, a finite It's always a tricky one, isn't it? Because people like to, or certainly agents like to sell the idea of potential as being worth something. <laughs> I'm like, well, it's only worth something if you actually act on it. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, look, in DAs, right? Like DAs in the area. Like if, if you haven't done that due diligence, and I'm sure, Veronica, you've seen thousands of clients buy um, without having any idea of how to check for DAs in the area. Um, but you know, how does that impact values if you didn't know the, you know, the apartment next uh, apartment block was going to go up, you know, 500 metres away or, you know, next door is going to knock it down and build townhouses or something? 
you know, do you look at those sort of things when you're valuing properties, is, you know, DAs in the area around? Uh, not generally for uh, residential mortgage valuations because, as our discussion earlier, there isn't the time to actually go to that extent and, you know, the banks don't pay for that, so we're, they're not paying us to go to that extent. Uh, yeah. It's the sort of thing that um, should be or could be or would be picked up in the conveyancing process where then the bank would come back to us and say, uh, we've just discovered that there's going to be a tower go up next door or over the road. Is that going to have material effects? So they're the sort of things that the valuer would probably know from their local knowledge, uh, but we don't you know, go to that extent of searching for DAs or development approvals um, in the immediate vicinity. They're the sort of things we either would know about or that we'd be made aware of through a conveyancing process. Right. Well, that's interesting because um, I haven't seen a lot of conveyancing conveyances that pick things like that up. We, we do that as part of our process with our clients. Um, but, yeah, it would be interesting to know if retrospectively uh, things were picked up and how that would affect evaluation. We really appreciate the time that you spent with us today, Bart. This has been really good to explain how these things work and, you know, and I guess blow a few little myths as well because certainly, um, you know, that idea about bank, the perception of bank vowels, bank valuations being low um, and where that's come from and you're saying in the last 20 years it really hasn't been the case because the banks themselves aren't doing the valuations and so that's a good one because you do hear that quite a lot. Um, and certainly as a sales agent I used to hear it where you go and do an appraisal and someone would say, oh, well, the bank valued it at a million and they always come in low. So I'm sort of the inference being I'm expecting you to come in higher. (laughs) So it's good to get to an understanding of that and certainly an understanding of the process. And, um, and, you know, I think that – you know, I think the big message really is that valuations are all about confidence and risk management and it's not just the banks, it's the individuals as well who are purchasing the property that need to get that that confidence and manage those risks. So we really do appreciate your time, Bart. No, that is a pleasure. I'm glad I could actually add some value. Thanks, Bart. No, you've got lots of experience, mate, plenty of value to add off, you know, heaps of questions you have been asked. So I really appreciate your time, Bart. Thank you. No trouble at all. Pleasure. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... I thought I might touch on that idea that valuers don't check for the DA activity of surrounding properties. And I can tell you most conveyances don't either. The odd one does. But if you're buying a property, say you're buying a house or even an apartment, and you look around and you think, okay, well, there's an opportunity in the surrounding properties for potentially a loss of view or a loss of privacy or a loss of natural light... You need to be able to look into, well, what could be built there? With most councils, if you call the office, you ask to speak to the duty planner, you will be able to find out in broad terms what can be done to uh, to various properties around you because every zone has some um, restrictions or limitations in terms of what can be built there. So you can get a sense of, well, how high could a building be built there or how many stories could it be, for example. So that's quite different to actually checking for what has been lodged in the surrounding property. So you might find the neighbour has lodged a DA or or has actually had a pre-DA meeting with council. So there's quite a lot of information that you can actually get by looking on the development part of the council's website. They all 
have it in one form or another. Some of them are more detailed than others. Some of them go back further than others. And you can also always ring the council and have a chat about the surrounding properties uh, of any property that you're looking at buying. And it's certainly something you should be doing. Please join us for our next episode when we're interviewing John Cunningham. He's back. We've interviewed him before. He is a real estate agent, a principal of an agency in Sydney and also ex-REI New South Wales president. John gives some great insights into the changes that uh, real estate agents are having to deal with in dealing with buyers and handling these open home situations with all the restrictions that the coronavirus have placed on open houses and auctions. And this little insights that might help buyers also while they're out looking in these current conditions. Please join us. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.